0: Thank you This is City Line, Real on Pride. Today, we're going to dive into HIV and AIDS. It is not a death sentence. There are people living full, uh, thriving lives, uh, living with HIV as well. So we've got these three panelists with us today. I'm joined by Dr. Michael Fenus, uh HIV activist. I have Maluba, communications specialist, health advocate, and content creator. I have Miles Sexton with us today, sobriety, HIV, and AIDS. AIDS advocate and creative director. First, I'm going to start with you, Doc. So can you, let's get into some terminology. And if you could give us the difference between HIV and AIDS, please.
1: Sure. So the difference between HIV and AIDS is that HIV is the name of the virus, the human immunodeficiency virus. And AIDS is a third and last stage of the disease that is caused by this virus, but it is preventable And we've come a long way since the AIDS crisis, which is basically um, an immunodeficiency. And at the time of the AIDS crisis, we didn't know which virus caused it. But now we know the cause. We can prevent HIV. We can treat it. We can make it undetectable. And there's a lot of exciting news. You're right. We have come a long way. And there is a difference. There
0: absolutely is. Can we talk a little bit about the terms negative, negative? undetectable and positive? Sure.
1: So if someone is HIV negative, it means they don't have the virus. Uh, Someone who is HIV positive, this is someone who is tested and found to have the virus in their system. Uh, And then HIV positive undetectable is something I love to talk about because it is not just something recent. It's something we've known in the medical community for many years, that if someone is taking their medications for HIV, so someone who's HIV positive, taking antiretroviral therapy can sustain what we call an undetectable viral load. And you might ask me, what's that? That basically means the amount of virus in the bloodstream is so, so low that it can't be found and it can't be transmitted to sexual partners. And so now people can have children when they're HIV positive undetectable and their children will be HIV negative. Uh, HIV positive uh, people can have sex with HIV negative sexual partners and not transmit the virus. So that is why we're excited to promote the message of U equals U.
0: Absolutely. And we're going to uh, really get into that in a bit. I want to talk uh, a little bit about testing. So testing fairly easy. You can actually do it from the comfort of your home. There's a lot of testing
1: options now. And uh, I know a lot of my you know, queer friends are happy to be in a city like Toronto where we have sexual health clinics, where they have rapid testing, anonymous testing for those people who are afraid of their information being shared or where does it go. Um, there is at home testing. And that's what I'm really excited to share with you guys today, because even though I'm a pharmacist and I'm sitting in a pharmacy and there's a clinic behind me, you don't necessarily need to go to a clinic. And this is great for remote communities or just people who are afraid to get tested. So it's just like what diabetics do. So this is the lancet or this is the little piece of metal that is going to poke me so we can take a blood sample. And so once we do that, we can get a result in about a minute.
0: That's amazing. Okay, so literally you can find out uh, your diagnosis super quick. Now, are there any barriers to testing? Because that seems very easy to me
1: for sure the reason why there are so many options for testing is because there's been so much stigma and there's stigma against people who are hiv positive but there's also stigma for people that want to get tested regularly for hiv so people who are sexually active but we know there's other communities in canada that are disproportionately affected by hiv similar to covid right so marginalized communities don't have the same access to both the knowledge, the testing, the treatment, the prevention methods. And for that reason, that's why we need to have anonymous testing. Some people are afraid that if they test positive, that you know their family finding out, or a partner, or the workplace, there has been discrimination against people who are HIV positive historically. And although there's laws against that here in Canada, it's the fear or serophobia, the fear of people who are HIV positive, that keeps a lot of people from knowing their status. And I just showed you how simple and easy it is to know your status once somebody knows their status that puts the power for decision-making into their own hands and that way they can get treatment and they can become hiv positive undetectable and we can end the transmission of hiv in our communities where do
0: you get those tests so these can be
1: ordered online different organizations i work closely with black cap the black coalition for aids prevention here in toronto if you go to their website and you order a at home uh, get a kit and i can give you the url i believe it's get a kit.ca and they'll send the kit right to your home free of charge
0: incredible and i want to give maluba a chance and miles as well maluba do you Do you see these barriers to testing uh, happening in, in real life? yes absolutely within my communities you see the barriers to
2: testing where people might think i don't have to test it's not something that may not be talked about in communities people may not want to be seen i'm going for testing so it's very important to have those different options whereas you can go to your doctor that you've known for years and ask for an hiv test you can go to a pharmacy and ask for an hiv test you can go to a festival like pride and get an anonymous hiv test or you can test at home and i think it's important to have those different choices and those different options so that we can get as many people tested as possible, because that is how we are ultimately going to end HIV if we know who is positive and who is negative and getting the positive people
0: on treatment and the negative people prevention methods. So I've heard conversations about people saying if you are living with HIV, (laughs) you're living with an HIV positive uh, diagnosis, you shouldn't necessarily have to disclose it if it is undetectable. I know this is controversial, but I want to get into that. Miles, let's talk a little bit about questioning. Do you ever question why you would ever need to share that information uh, of your status with anyone? Yeah, I mean, I think
3: definitely at the beginning when I was first diagnosed, I think that was like a huge area of like discomfort and shame. I think inside of me was just like I was single. I was trying to date and like, you know, knowing that I had to like kind of disclose legally the status of mine in Canada still there's like a law that legally requires me to to disclose it. You know, I think I think that really was really hard on me, I think, at the beginning of my journey. Now, though, I think like where I'm at, personally, I think it's something that I try to celebrate, and I think it's something that's just as a part of me as anything else. I'm a little bit conflicted, I think, in, in where I guess I stand with that, because, you know, I, I look at HIV as something that's like a positive part of who I am.
0: Okay, that totally makes sense to me. I have a viewer named Dee asking about these tests in the United States. Do we know anything about getting these tests in the United States, Dr. Finn?
1: Yes. So I completed my education actually in the U.S. That's where I got my PharmD or doctor of pharmacy. And not only are at-home testing uh, readily available in the U.S., um, they have at-home testing for other STIs, but uh, something else that I want to praise the United States for, if I can give them any credit, it is the ability to get post and pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is PrEP, and the post-exposure prophylaxis is PEP. And these are two names for a medication regimen that here in Canada typically, people go to an HIV clinic or the emergency room to get. Now, what is this medication? This medication would be for somebody who is HIV negative, wants to remain HIV negative, and we can give them medication to do that. Now, two states in the US, New York and California, passed laws where people could just walk into a pharmacy. So we're breaking down those barriers. And sadly, Ontario has not moved in that direction, not yet. So in other provinces like Alberta and British Columbia, we see not only just options for testing, but we see that, public health covers the cost of the medication. We don't have that here in Ontario. We have different programs, but we don't have universal coverage for HIV treatment. So antiretroviral therapy, PrEP, which is the pre-exposure prophylaxis. This is one pill a day that prevents HIV, similarly to how birth control is a pill that prevents pregnancy. But then again, with using pregnancy as the example, there is um, medication to give for those oopsies, the morning after pill, right? And that's exactly the same concept that we're using for PEP, post-exposure prophylaxis. If someone had a condom break or a condom wasn't used, they can go and get post-exposure prophylaxis from our pharmacy. Um, using the network of doctors that we have, the queer providers and clinic that we've created. But in places in the States, they can just walk in and talk to the pharmacist who's qualified enough to prescribe them the medication to get started. And then they can see a physician or a clinic for follow-up blood work. We praise these advances. We always know that the science is there. As Miles was saying, you know, that sometimes the laws don't always catch up and society doesn't always catch up to where we are with the science.
0: Okay so so I'm so let's say I'm HIV negative and I want to figure out how I can access prep tomorrow. Where do I go?
1: Well, that's a great question. You have many options in a city like Toronto and you want to take prep, you would go to a prep clinic. Now we've created one here on Church Street at Meds Expert where someone can walk in, register, they get their blood work done, and then as soon as we get the results, everything's done virtually so we can serve the whole province. Uh, there are other prep clinics. Now um, you'll see, especially on Church Street, lots of businesses that cater to the LGBTQ community. And there's been a lot of them that have been accused of rainbow washing as well. Um, but there's other communities that are disproportionately affected like Afro-Caribbean Black Canadians and Indigenous Canadians. Now there are aid service organizations in almost every city that someone can reach out to to get linked either to testing options or a PrEP clinic, or if they're HIV positive, so to an infectious disease specialist or what we call an HIV specialist. And it's not always easy, but there is support out there. So there are over 60,000 Canadians living with HIV and we have wonderful aid service organizations and other LGBTQ organizations and clinics and hospitals that are happy to link somebody with the care that they need.
0: And would it be the same answer if I want to get TAP? Same answer? Not
1: in Ontario, unfortunately. A lot of people seeking post-exposure prophylaxis are not left with any good options. It's not covered. So if you don't have prescription drug coverage, um, you can go to the hospital for sexual assault and it would be covered. But outside of that, you would need private coverage or hopefully be covered by some sort of public program. I don't want to say that the government doesn't cover anybody. They do cover Indigenous Canadians with a status card, refugees, Ontario Works. There's a plethora of programs. But Ontario does not have universal coverage. So meaning, Tracy, if you were to go into an emergency room for PEP, you're likely paying around a $1,000 out of pocket.
0: $1000 and that's yeah, the pill you are... take one day
1: No so uh, unlike the morning after pill for pregnancy it's uh, a regimen you take for a month so for 28 days take a pill or two and uh, afterwards we test the we test you to make sure that you're HIV negative and then there's a follow up test after after that typically when people go on pep or post-exposure prophylaxis it's a great opportunity for us to discuss prep with them pre-exposure prophylaxis so if there's somebody that has condomless sex or anal sex or you know and there's nothing wrong with saying uh, that condoms have fallen out of favor, not just in the gay community, but also in the straight community as well. And um, the more years we are out further from the AIDS crisis, we see that condom use is on the decline, but PrEP works better than a condom anyway. And so we use the, that uh, opportunity to discuss HIV prevention in general with you.
0: That's amazing. It's a, And I don't think a lot of people understand that these drugs exist. Now we got to get into the money of it all because that's yep. got to be a bit prohibitive. Miles, talk to me a little bit. So we've talked about prep, we've talked about PEP. I want to talk about HIV medications. If you're living with with, uh, with HIV, you've got to take meds every day to keep your levels uh, super low so that you can maintain that undetectable status. Are we talking a lot of money here, Miles? Yeah, I
3: mean, it was definitely a very stressful time for me because when I was diagnosed with HIV, I ended up actually leaving my my job, not realizing that I was also losing my health coverage. So then my bill for like my, my HIV medication, because I have to get it in three months, dose it was, was $3,000. And I, I just remember like looking at the pharmacist being like, how am I going to pay for this? You know, like I, I just like, I wasn't thinking. And you know, there was some options that were sort of available to me to like lower that price tag a little bit, but it really wasn't that much because of like based off of my income of like what I was previously making. So it was, it was a very like stressful time of like me trying to like heal and like embark on this journey of like accepting my status and then also trying to deal with like, how am I going to afford $3,000? every three months for my HIV medication just to like get to become undetectable and to be healthy again. So it was pretty scary.
0: That sounds awful, Uh, but you're saying it like it's in the past. So are you over that phase? Like everything is good now? Yeah,
3: I mean, I have an undetectable status now. I I now work with an amazing organization that completely covers all of my drug costs. But, you know, but I'm like a 1% of like very few people I think that live in Canada. You know, I have so many friends that like they they can't afford a lot of the of the medication that because the Ontario government doesn't provide this like kind of equal health coverage for everyone, which is, I think, really unfortunate, you know? It's definitely something that I hope will eventually change the more that we have these types of conversations that we challenge the Ontario government to like start, you know, I think opening it up a bit more because no one should go without medication for something like this.
0: Maluba, uh, how about you? So in order to maintain undetectable status, you you have to take medication every day. Am I right? Absolutely. Is it cost prohibitive for you? Yes, absolutely. So
2: for me, um, I was born with HIV and I actually came to Canada when I was about two years old. So when it was discovered, um, we were actually refugees in Canada. Um, I was a baby that was told I was given six months. Um, It was 1995. So the medications weren't even really secure, let alone did my family have coverage for it? So I can only um, imagine for my mother how stressful that was to try to get compassionate care, um, to try to manage hospital bills, because I was a two-year-old that was in the hospital, that had a feeding tube. Um, that was, so those are, um, a lot of barriers as well. Um, when you look at new immigrants, when you look at people that are, uh, new to the country. And then of course, um, as in growing up and becoming an adult, um, I got coverage through government supports and disability, but then when you want to go into the workforce it's a worry that you wonder, oh, will my work be able to tell that I'm HIV positive because insurance is paying so much for my medication? How much is insurance gonna pay? When you're newly to a sector, it's not like you're making all the millions of dollars. So, you know, your insurance might pay 70% and then you still have to pay out of pocket. And for these expensive medications, out of pocket a month is a lot. So I've definitely gone through my process. Um, Luckily, I'm somebody who can talk a lot and I know how to argue. Thank you to, to my African mother for giving me that trait. So I've been able to manage and to get my medications monthly and to have an undetectable viral load. And I do have to also say I have a great doctor and a great pharmacist that also can advocate for me. And I think that's really important to have a great community around you that can um, support you. But like Miles mentioned, not everybody is lucky in those situations. Like I mentioned, new immigrants, um, people that are in vulnerable populations, maybe don't have as well jobs as some of us can. Um, it's very difficult and it's very sad to think that, you know, you have to choose between buying your HIV medication or
0: buying food for yourself. Have you seen a difference, Maluba? let's say from, you know, the 90s to now in terms of getting access to these meds or people understanding that these meds even exist? I think, I mean, I
2: don't remember much of the 90s <laughs> because I was quite young, but what I do remember, the fashion was great. But also, yes, it was. It was. <laughs> (laughs) was but um, I think that there is a difference in um, when we're talking about treatment I think there's a lot more organizations and a lot more activists that are working to get more treatment it is kind of sometimes something that I have struggled with where I'm finding a lot of tough activists like Dr. Fanu but we need to get the government on track as well and we need to get this coverage it shouldn't just be you know these organizations are activists and I think as progressing from the 90s, I will say, as a two-year-old, I started like, they put on chores through my stomach and I was taking about like six medications per day. And you know, there was a syrup that just tasted like evil. And if I ever see it again, I would scream. And um, I have to say it's much different where we're at a point where you could take one pill once a day to keep your viral load suppressed. There's actually um, something that Health Canada just approved, which is an injection where an HIV person would go and get an injection in their butt. Well, at least in my butt because I got a thick butt. But in their butt once a month, and that would actually suppress your virus for the entire month, and then you would go the next month. So it's just amazing to see these advancements. And if I could tell my five-year-old self that hated taking six pills a day, that don't worry, it's, it's getting better, and the scientists are working on it. I think she'd be really impressed.
0: I'm wondering if you can explain uh, Dr. fanous Why, if I was HIV positive, how come I can live and thrive and have a good life now? Like what's happening in my body now that wasn't happening in the 80s? What's changed? How are we keeping the viral loads low?
1: Great question. So what's changed since the 80s are the medications. The antiretroviral drugs that we have now uh, belong to typically five or six families. We group them in what we call class of drugs. And the families of the early drugs that we had, the early classes, were not as effective as what we have now. So as Maluba was uh, demonstrating in the 90s, there were uh, many of my clients taking a handful of pills two to three times a day, four times a day, uh, some on an empty stomach, some with food, and then the side effects themselves were just intolerable. What's changed in that time in 1995, actually, is the time that uh, thanks to a Canadian doctor and thanks to the LGBTQ community, progress was made in finding what we call a drug cocktail or a combination of medications we can use together. Uh, you might hear this before referred to as heart or cocktail or combined art. There's many names for it. But basically on all the graphs you see from the US and Canada, you see the amount of deaths due to HIV AIDS increasing, increasing throughout the 80s and 90s. And then 95, they all drop off what does this mean? It does it mean nobody gets HIV anymore. No, it just means that people don't have to die from HIV AIDS any longer. Now, um, fast forward another 10 years from the 90s. So the mid 2000s, and you see these tablets now become one tablet a day. So they put the drugs about three or four drugs in one tablet taken daily. And as Maluba also just uh, informed our viewers, now you don't even need to take a pill a day to remain HIV positive undetectable. It can be an injection once a month or once every two months. Uh, What are these injections these injections are long-acting antiretroviral medication uh, and Maluba you're right it is it is in the butt it is in the gluteus uh, not just yours but everybody that receives that medication because Sorry. yeah yeah <laughs> it's just a little bit bigger than what we can put into the deltoid um, but it's really effective it's well tolerated and you don't even have to remember to take a pill a day so the advancement in science is what basically has changed Tracy since the 80s the only question is have our governments? One of the panelists outlined that, you know, the governments don't move as quickly. And that you eloquently said that it's thanks to activists that we've moved governments to cover these meds. Everyone now on the panel has you know admitted these drugs are too expensive. What do we do about this? The pharmaceutical industry is not about to drop their price on these very effective and needed medications. Uh, but you see British Columbia and Alberta and other provinces where public health covers it. And I hate to be a political uh, pharmacist, but uh, I have to be. Uh, Because I'm an activist first and a pharmacist second, I have real trouble watching a client across the counter not being able to afford these meds. So I'm not Miles's pharmacist, but let's say if Miles were to come to the pharmacy and say, I can't afford $3,000. MedsExpert provides them the meds free of charge and figures out a solution, whether that is a compassionate supply, whether that's registering the client for a program like Trillium Drug Program. What is Trillium Drug Program? This is a program we have in Ontario uh, that is administered by the Ministry of Health and it covers the medications, but not hundred percent. There is a deductible calculated. It's really annoying and it's really ineffective. So the Ontario government basically says Okay, if Miles made $100,000 last year, then he has to cover 4% of his income as a deductible. So he'd have to spend 4000 out of pocket before the province pays for his meds. Does that make any sense? I mean, in Toronto, where the rents are already well above 1000 and maybe 2000 a month, who can afford a $1,000 medication regimen just to stay healthy? And so we push the Ontario government, don't cut public health. The Doug Ford government cut $100 million from public health the first year that they passed that. And they had proposed to do that every year for 10 years in order to save $1 billion. Well, Doug, within a year or two of your uh, premiership, COVID happened. And now we all recognize how important public health is. And although I don't wanna make parallels between COVID and HIV, we can see that if it wasn't for activists moving, governments don't do things on their own. And it takes scientists, it takes you know these eloquent, beautiful activists we have with us here to speak about their own experiences. And to push governments to act.
0: Absolutely, well said. Well said, indeed. I want to talk a little bit about uh, language because part of what we want to do is just sort of destigmatize a lot of this. It's a vicious cycle of you feel HIV is a death sentence. You do not want to get tested. If you if you're not tested, people are put in the position of having to disclose their status, and it goes around and around and around. If we destigmatize People understand they can have a healthy life with HIV. They understand there are drugs out there if they want to have sexual activity with someone who is HIV positive. Everyone feels comfortable getting tested. And then no one has to have a big disclosure because everyone's been tested. So we want to, we want to try and help get to that point in our population. So I want to talk about language there are a few missteps when it comes to language around hiv and one word that is used to discuss a negative status is clean which which i, I feel might cause a little bit of harm miles do you have any uh, thoughts around using that word I,
3: I cringe when i like hear that or like read that on someone's profile cuz it's just like you know i think it's like the la- it doesn't just that hiv doesn't mean i'm dirty i take a shower just like everyone else like what what does this have to do you know i i think you know as someone who's living with HIV I take my sexual health very seriously mm-hmm. now you know and it's like I'm, and I'm trying to empower other people too it's like I, I feel like I'm an even more safer advocate you know to to have sex with than like you know someone who isn't even going in knowing what their status is or isn't going for routine STD and STI checks. so it's like but I'm, I'm considered not clean because of that it's It's just, I think it's such a terrible terminology.
0: It absolutely is uh, outdated and not at all appropriate or accurate. So Maluba... Talk to me a little bit about stigma and what do you think it might take for us to move even more forward in this conversation about destigmatizing HIV?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I actually presented to a grade seven class about two years ago, back when we were in class. And um, I remember a grade seven boy said he would be able to tell if somebody had HIV, it's similar to cancer, they would be bald. And after I disclosed, he said, oh, I'm very shocked. And he asked me privately, um, I, I know science has come along way, because you've explained it, has society come such a long way? And I thought, oh, a seven-year-old boy is asking me this, and and, and I'm so shocked. I think that's always stuck with me, is that science has advanced, has society advanced. When I was 11 years old, I had a, um, in the Big Sister Big Brothers program, I had a big sister assigned to me, and she had me over at her house for a barbecue. Her and her husband had glass plates, and I had a paper plate and a plastic cup. That was an adult in my life, and as a child, I was more educated than she was. Uh, Just like Miles mentioned, you see uh, certain people, when you're in a relationship with them or you're going on a date, that language of using clean. My mother, when I would come home from school, would be like, you smell like outside, go shower. <laughs> like, I had to shower two times a day. So I'm like, I know I'm clean. Sometimes I see on Twitter, people are like, I don't shower at the bottom of my legs. I'm like, some of y'all, like, are not clean, don't you? Do not talk to me about being clean and whatnot. Like, that's just, <laughs> like, we're not going to go there. But as, you know, somebody who would grow up, like, I would be a 16-year-old girl, all my friends are dating, and I would be like, do I have to disclose to the 16-year-old Old boy? Is he going to tell his parents? Is he going to tell the entire school? And so that's why when you guys were having a, a discussion about disclosure earlier, um, it was something very difficult for me because I think that when we're talking about that, it's the different situations that people are in. And if you disclose to this person, does it remain their secret or is this now everybody's secret? For me, I think with stigma, um, there's the part of, of people that are just uneducated and maybe the last education they got was about the 80s um, HIV epidemic. Um, and it's just about educating and updating people, and people are very open-minded to learning, and then of course there's just ignorant people that do not want to learn about it and hopefully do not uh, spread that stigma around. I think it's something that we're going to be battling forever, I think along with other discrimination that happens within the LGBTQ um, community, with racism, things like that, sexism, I think it's something that always will happen with HIV stigma, but it's something about breaking that barrier down but i do want to say as an activist there's sometimes that i'm on a date and yes i i want to break down the stigma and educate them and sometimes i just don't want to deal with that bullcrap or that nonsense at that time and for my health i need to isolate from the situation Break down and get away from the stigma, but I think it goes along with, if anything else, you know, just what they talk about bullying. If you are a bystander and you see HIV stigma going along, you could pop in and uh, really assist in that. I think that it's always um, something that's big in the news is when Princess Diana hugged a, a person living with HIV for the first time, and I think that that's kind of those asides that we need when it comes to hiv stigma and i really want to spread the advancements and education about it um and also put aside the uh the hate towards it because at the end of the day HIV, when I first Googled it when I was about nine years old after my mother and my doctors explained it to me, I found the good, the bad, the ugly. It's just a gay disease. It's just a Black African disease. Those people need to die. And so it really comes down to discrimination because you think a certain type of person is living with HIV and that person has done wrong or has done bad and has purposely given themselves HIV or deserved this in a way. And if anybody is in this sector or learns, you will learn nobody deserves HIV or chooses HIV. It is something that just happens like any other um, illness. And I think that we all need just a little more compassion when it comes to it.
0: And that's the key there, this idea that it's attached to a judgment, like it's, it's automatically attached to a judgment. You know, the thing you said about you smell like outside, that is hashtag black mom to the nth degree. Oh, my God. I say to my kids all the time. But tell me to mind my business if you want Maluba. But I want to know, how do you handle it then? If you are on a date, is that the sort of thing you put on your profile? Is that the sort of thing you bring up on date number one, date number two, date number five? Like, how do you deal with that? it's so interesting actually talking to
2: my friends in the lgbtqia community because i am a cis heterosexual woman and sometimes my friends will tell me on their dating uh, apps there's actually hiv and you can put positive or negative and there's undetectable and that is not on heterosexual apps and you know just talking to men. Sometimes I just, you know, in general, I think men are trash. Um, but I do tend to love them. It's, it's a really it's something I'm very difficult working through. Um, and I think that it's been something that's a process um, for me because I am a public activist. I have found that I want to rip off the bandage. I don't want to like you anymore. So I want to tell you directly because I don't want to fall in love with you. Of course, that is just personally for me. I understand some people. Want to date the person more and trust them more than disclose. And I've had good and bad and ugly experiences. I think I've had experiences where they're just not interested at all. Um, They've kind of been polite, then maybe afterwards send me a text message and they're not uh, polite about it. Then I've had. Some people that are very educated in it and just know everything and I'm like, Oh, you're a grown man. I like that. <laughs> and you know, then I've had actually situations where they wanna ask more and more questions. And that's why I have to decide as an educator, as an activist, do I want to date somebody I'm constantly educating or do I want them to go out and educate themselves? Do I want to feel like I am a teacher also in my relationship? And I have felt like, OK, after I've taught you all this stuff, like now I just want to go buy you an ice cream cone because I think like you're one of my students, you know? And so that's something that I've, I've had to like myself be like okay he's a grown man i'm 28 years old um if this man's you know 28 or older as well like he can google this himself he can look it up and i think sexual health is important we should all be testing we should all know what's going on with our bodies so it's so impressive sometimes when i do date a man that has never gotten an hiv test or never gotten an std test and Mm -hmm. i'm like well it's as far as i know i'm healthier than you It's definitely, I mean, 28. It's interesting talking to my HIV negative friends. Sometimes they're like, well, dating's just a mess in general. So sometimes I don't feel as bad, but it it definitely adds an extra layer to it. Um, But uh, yes, my, uh, my final submission is that men are trash, but I do want to marry a fine tall man one
0: day. We're going to sort through the trash pile and we're going to find who who doesn't like require you to educate him constantly and doesn't run away uh, because he's a grown man. So I love that story. I want to talk a little bit about feeling marginalized within a marginalized community. I know you're cishet uh, Maluba, but if you are within the two S LGBTQ plus community, and you feel you feel highly maligned because you were living with an HIV positive status. That can be really tough. What can we do within communities to help destigmatize? Uh, and Michael, I'm going to throw this one to you. Where what do we need to be focusing on? so that folks feel included uh, in in all the communities living with an HIV positive status?
1: Great question. And um, I once again, like have all the admiration for Maluba for uh, describing her dating experiences. It's not much better in the uh, queer community either, but I agree with you that, you know, a lot of times on dates I have to educate people and or you have to educate people and you shouldn't have to. This um, there are campaigns out there and you may see billboards about you equals you. What does that mean? Well, uh, it's short for undetectable equals untransmittable. And basically, that means that if somebody is HIV positive and taking their medications as prescribed and they are sustaining a what we say, an undetectable or very low viral load, then they are not a risk to sexual partners, and that's a long sentence to say. To basically say zero risk, right? And we don't—I don't get to say zero a lot at work as a scientist and as a healthcare professional. We never tell anybody anything that is a hundred percent or something that is zero percent, right? Like the COVID vaccines, they will say it's ninety-nine point five or ninety-five percent effective. We are hesitant to say things like "U equals U," but the medical community has known about this for a long time. It took a campaign. By Prevention Access, um, their executive founder, their executive director, Bruce Richmond in the States started the U Equals U uh, campaign, became a consensus statement, which I think Meds Expert is the only pharmacy and clinic in Canada to have signed. Um, but now 800 organizations have signed this consensus statement. And you can, too. Um, your organization, your uh, group can sign on to the consensus statement. There is also a small did you know, uh, as a proud Canadian, I like to say that Canada is the only federal government to have signed the U equals U consensus statement. That means our federal Minister of Health, signed it on World AIDS Day a couple years back, making Canada the first federal government, first country to recognize this incredible science that we already know. There are other campaigns out there, and I like some of them like the HIV equal and other campaigns that we support, like Can't Pass It On by Canada's Katie. But the campaigns are just that. I mean, they are as good as the amount of people we can reach online or on billboards. It really is the job once again of the government to educate our students in school, in sex ed, I won't even open up the subject of Doug Ford getting elected on the whole sex ed campaign, but how vilified were queer people, trans people, people of color who our bodies and our identities and our sexuality were not included in this? uh, Basically, he wanted to revert back to the old sex ed curriculum of the 90s. Why? When we've made so much progress in HIV, Uh, In understanding trans and trans bodies and identities and expression or non-binary, why would we want to go back in time? Uh, This is the job of teachers. I love educators. My mother's an educator. So once again, shout out to Maluba for educating our students where our government is failing to do so.
2: Just on that part of marginalization within other groups, I think we see that a lot in um, in anything that's going on within discrimination. And I think within the HIV community, something that I used to be told because I was born with HIV, I used to kind of get the idea of, oh, okay, then it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. Or are you mad at your parents for how that transferred? And trying to kind of separate me from people that got HIV later on in their life because you're trying to blame them in a certain way for something that they did. And I think it's really important that I as a community, we all remember like, we're living with this virus, some of us are allies. And I don't want to say we're all in this together, but we do all have the same fight when it comes to HIV stigma. And my greatest friends have been people that have, you know, been born with HIV, HIV negative, have gotten HIV later on in their life. And I never um, would want to separate myself in that way um, or have to, uh, and for me, it was a lot like also growing up being like, well, I didn't have a choice in this or This is what I'm learning and different things like that. And I think within a community that kind of a lot of people are already against us or don't understand us, we do want to stick together and unite
0: on uh, such a heavy topic. Thank you for saying that. No, I appreciate you. I appreciate the nuance of that. And I have a comment from a viewer saying, I am a cishet woman. I'm supposed to find out my results for HIV tomorrow. I'm feeling much more calm after viewing this panel. So thank you for discussing. And, you know, that's what we want to do. Like, we want to show that there is life and solutions and there are drugs out there. I don't understand why. Like, I feel like I'm a pretty open-minded person. Why did I just learn about two years ago. And then I learned about it and I thought, oh, my gosh, like, I, why didn't I know this existed? Why didn't I know that these possibilities were out there? And so definitely we need to really be pushing this narrative uh, to get rid of the stigma. Part of uh, what's going to help uh, sort of uh, eradicate the stigma and eradicate H- HIV is this 90-90-90 uh, goal that the, uh, the United Nations have. Can we Who feels comfortable talking about the 90-90-90 goal and where we're at in that? Would that be you, Doc? I'll quickly
1: say what 90-90-90 is, and I'll let Maluba rebut because there is room to grow. But in short, Tracy, the UNAIDS started something called the 90-90-90 as a goal to test 90% of people who are sexually active. So the people who could get HIV, let's test them all and let's test it. And then 90% of those, the people who test positive, let's get them treatment, right? So treatment is what we talked about earlier, antiretroviral therapy or heart or the cocktail. Now from that group of people that are taking the treatment, we would hope that at least 90% of them would be undetectable. And so this is what we call a treatment cascade. When you look, take the numbers of people who are sexually active and then the number of people who are HIV positive, and then make sure those are undetectable. If we can get that number to reach 90% in every column, then the United Nations says we can end the HIV AIDS pandemic. And it is a global pandemic, 40 million people around the world means this is a pandemic. Now, in order to reach those goals, that's been the b- bit of a matter of debate. And I would add, before I give the floor to Maluba, is that we need another cascade or another group before we even test everybody who's sexually active. It's a great question. Why did Tracy just find out about PrEP two years ago? Why was Canada so late in approving PrEP? And why was the Ontario government even later for listing it on its formulary? This stuff should be told not just in sex ed classes, this stuff should be on billboards, should be on commercials on TV. Imagine if the AIDS activists of the 80s knew about PrEP or if PrEP existed back then, they would have burned down the FDA to get access to it. And here I have a pill sitting on my shelf behind me that can prevent you from getting a lifelong illness or chronic condition and very few people know about it. The queer community is up to date on it because it is on our dating apps. So gay men, bi, bisexual men, queer men who use grinder or Scruff have an option to put their HIV status on there. Not because HIV is a gay disease, it's just because queer activists were at the forefront of moving this discussion and the solution forward. And it's not a gay disease because there's 10 times the amount of people in the world living with HIV that are not queer. And a lot of people miss that in the discussion, right? So in Western Europe, and in North America, it looked like a gay de- disease in the early days to researchers because gay men were presenting with cancers. But we quickly learned that that was wrong and that the name of this was not GRIDS or gay related immune deficiency, it was AIDS. And then we had to find the virus. And now we have a preventative. So there's exciting news. I think uh, for me to bring the 90, 90, 90 news to CityLine, I'm happy to say like, listen, we have a roadmap, we have a solution, but I'll let Maluba criticize it. And maybe I'll add in in a minute of. Why else we need more?
2: So I think my, um, my criticism of the 9990. It's a a great goal, and I admire the UNAIDS for it. But I do want to say, my mother always told me, you know, when I was 15 years old and came home crying, you are black, you are female, and you're living with HIV. This world is not made for you. But, you know, you're just going to take it anyways. You know, that was the idea. We have vulnerable populations. I worry about that 10, 10, 10%. Why, when HIV, I, I was not alive in the 80s, but I've done a lot of research. The reason why this is You know, disease was ignored at first and why we lost a lot of people in the 80s was because here in North America, it was a gay disease and we did not care about gay people. That's just what it was. So we just kind of threw it away. And then in Africa, it was the black disease and we did not care about um, black families that were getting it as well. And so we lost generations of these people. And I just don't want us to fall into that trap again. When we're talking about um, the 10% of people that aren't necessarily testing, if you don't have a home to go to, maybe you're not worried if you have HIV. If you don't have a meal to have, you're not worried about if you have HIV. It really comes down to the social determinants of health. We are all on this panel and are very lucky to be working individuals that are housed. But there's not a lot that that we can't pretend that that's always happening. And so for those vulnerable populations that aren't getting tested, that maybe do know they're positive, but can't get treatment, um, what's that 10% looking like? And what's that spread looking like? Um, I'm happy to see some advancements in care. I know for myself, if I had a child here in Canada, um, formula would be provided for a year for free for my child. But I do think about the woman in Nigeria, Africa, who might have to think about Food or HIV for a child. So she is feeding her child from her breast because then her child will be malnourished and die from hunger. So, different things like that that we need to think about when it comes to the 90 90 90 just to me is like, are we talking about the 90% of people that are privileged in this world and are lucky? Why are we forgetting the 10% of people? And I think we've also seen that through the COVID pandemic when we're telling everyone stay home and then you see some people on the streets
0: that don't have a home. Listen, great, great points. Miles, I I actually want to give you the last word here. What do you want people to walk away with? And obviously there's a ton of it. The education piece is huge and everyone needs to do their part in learning. But what would you like people to walk away from uh, when it comes to their thoughts about living with HIV or any of the drugs that are available or just your existence and your
3: experiences? Absolutely. Well, I live a very normal life. I take one pill a day and that's the only thing that's literally changed about my life, I would say, like in, in the, the wide scheme of things. I think, you know, but the biggest thing is, is that I think that people need to identify that like months like pride or, you know, taking moments in in their lives to educate themselves, because that's the only way that we're going to really end this stigma that exists you know, and to, and to learn more about these advancements of medical science. And if we don't like own our own education, then we're never going to like, like, cause I think we need to be the change that's go- that we want to see in the world. Because it's just, you know, I really, people are not taking that as an opportunity. It's like, they're, it's, they're, they're educating themselves like I was. I didn't know anything about HIV when I got, when I tested positive. I literally thought I was going to die. And this was three years ago, you know? And I was one of those people. It's like, I had this fear of it. So I just didn't even touch it. And now I'm like educating myself on all the ins and outs of HIV. And and it should never take me becoming positive or someone in my life becoming positive in order to educate myself. It's like I think it's like our duty as being like just a human and an ally to like this beautiful rainbow of people that we have in this world that we need to educate ourselves on all of these huge social issues.
0: Yes. No, I love that. It is, our, it is our responsibility to educate ourselves. All the information is out there. You know, there's this thing called Google. It's like everything's there. I want to thank you all so much for this conversation. You know, it went longer than it was supposed to because I just needed to let it go. So thank you for that, Dr. Michael Fanous, Maluba, and Miles Sexton. And you know what? I know it's not easy, although you three make it look very easy to talk about personal issues uh, in front of everyone. So I appreciate it because we are learning and we want as many people as possible to join the conversation and uh, and to learn along with it. So thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, you, Tracy. Happy Pride.
0: Happy Pride. That's how I should have ended it.